0: Thank you for choosing to listen to Why I Stay. After this episode, be sure to check out our latest podcast series, Answers, a show where Patheos tackles common questions about the world's different religions, such as what makes something kosher, why is there a hell, and what are the names of God? You can find our entire catalog of podcasts, including answers, at patheos.com or on your favorite podcast app. And now, without further ado... Here's why I stay.
1: And so I was just at the lowest point. I just, at that point in time, I was like, well, I guess I'm just done. You know, with with Christianity, I'm done with God. Because if this is what the people that I respect the most believe, then I don't know what to believe. I don't know what's true about anything they've said. It was just bad. I didn't know what I could keep and what I could throw away. You know, at that point in time, I just threw the baby out with the bathwater. I was like, I don't know if I believe any of this now.
2: This is Why I Stay, a show about faithfulness in the face of judgment, confusion, and hurt. Lecrae has been in the hip hop game for more than 15 years. He's won two Grammys and nine Dove Awards. He's had a lot of success within American evangelicalism, but when he started to talk about his experiences as a black man in America, the very people that had loved him began to hurl accusations and hatred in his direction. It was enough for him to doubt everything about his faith, nearly getting divorced, and he even had struggles with addiction. But Lecrae has come through all of those experiences stronger, and he's even more dedicated to the gospel now. I sat down with Lecrae to understand how he was able to overcome the judgment and lies of the Christian community, and in that process, how he discovered an even more meaningful faith. So you are famous for being part of Christian hip-hop. Like you said, you've done a lot of other things, and we will talk about all of that, but also I want to talk a lot about your experience within church, so I want to dive in a little bit deeper into, um, what your life was like growing up. What did you go to church? Who did you know that was religious? Uh, all those kinds of little background things.
1: Yeah. So I didn't grow up in church. Uh, my grandmother was a devout Christian. She became a Christian in her forties, mid forties. So it wasn't as if my aunt's uncle's mom grew up in church. They grew up seeing her transition. So some took to it, some didn't. And, um, my mom was a little bit adverse to it just because kind of the denomination or the the particular sect of church that she grew up in was very, very legalistic, meaning like they couldn't wear pants, they couldn't wear makeup. And so she she took that as like, I don't want you growing up in this. So she raised me kind of like a free thinker. It was more about education and library and books and culture and um, thinking about the world in general. And that's how my aunt, my, my aunt who was close to her, my Aunt Teresa, she would send me postcards from Tokyo and different places in Africa. So I I grew up thinking that Christianity was very closed-minded. Church was a closed-minded kind of place that was very rigid.
2: So I assume it was Black church that your grandma was going to. Yeah. Did you have any perception of white church? So like, was it just, you know, the guys on TV asking for money or was it not even that?
1: No, that's that's funny. Um, I grew up a pretty like, culturally segregated. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though there may be white people around me, they weren't, it wasn't like a culture or a, a context that I existed in. Um, so pretty much everything ab- about my existence was black up until like my last couple years of high school where we moved and, um, and it was a way more diverse school situation. But, but even in that school, I just hung out with the black kids. Mm-hmm. So as it pertained to church, my mom grew up in the civil rights era. She was raised by the Black Panthers. So she was very pro-Black. And so the idea of like a white man telling us what to do and how to understand our Bible would have been like, whoa, this is hmm. not like we grew up like this is not going to happen. So I didn't have any context for white church or white anything. I mean, I wouldn't have explored that space had it not been for college and hearing a white pastors come teach at our black uh, Bible study.
2: All right. So you're in college. Uh, why'd you go to a Bible study? Was it a girl?
1: Um, well, yes, but, <laughs> but yes, it was, but not in the way you would think. So in high school, uh, when I was a sophomore, I took a senior to her senior prom. Mm-hmm. So she went on to college. And when, when I got to college as a freshman, of course, she's already a, a junior at, at that point in time. And so she had been going to Bible study. She was a Christian and she was like, oh my gosh, welcome to school. Um, You got to go to this Bible study. It's so good. And, you know, me, I'm a free thinker. So I'm like, I'll I'll try anything once, Mm -hmm. you know. So, you know, I knew her. She invited me. Wasn't like to date her, but it was just a familiar face. I didn't know anybody on campus. Mm -hmm. So I said, sure, I'll go. And I wandered into that Bible study. And yeah, I just went in there and you know, I thought I knew a lot about the Bible because of my grandmother. But then when I got in there, I was like, Yo, I don't know any of this. Mm. And I think I was embarrassed a little bit. And it's just like the the desire to, to know and to, like, be intelligent. And I hated, you know, when they would ask questions and I didn't have answers, I hated that feeling of embarrassment. So I was like, I'm gonna keep going to keep going at this so I can learn this stuff and be versed in this whole stuff that they're talking about.
2: Yeah. So it wasn't you weren't driven by like... uh spirituality is more about knowledge in the beginning there?
1: Definitely knowledge. It was definitely knowledge. Um, yeah. you know, just I was a chameleon. So any kind of setting you put me in, I want to be great at it. If, if anybody, you know, does Enneagrams, I know there's all kinds of different spooky stuff about it, but, um, I'm a three okay. and you know, we, we want to be seen. We want to be the the one, the the Neo in the matrix. So,
3: mm-hmm.
1: you know, when we were in Bible study and they're talking about David, I'm like, why does everybody know this and I don't? I feel stupid. You know what I mean? So it's mm-hmm. like, I got to learn this stuff.
2: Yeah. When did it switch from knowledge to, to faith?
1: Well, we went to a, um, they all were saying, hey, we're going to this conference. The conference was in Atlanta. Of course, I wanted to travel. Never, never been to Atlanta. So I was excited to go to Atlanta, you know, it was for, for African Americans, just like, you know all the historically black colleges, Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh man, this is a great place. And then of course there's the fun side of it with like all the parties and the, the Freaknik. It was like this big picnic for African American college students. And of course I go to the conference and just seeing all these African American college students, I'm just like, yo, this is crazy. It was called the Impact Conference, and and it was Impact was like the wing of Campus Crusade for Christ. That was the black wing african-american wing of campus crusade for christ so Mm -hmm. i didn't know that young people loved jesus or went to church i thought christianity was grandma's religion so (laughs) i thought it was peppermints and rules and long skirts and i'm seeing braids and dances and cheers and rap music and clothes that look Mm -hmm. fresh and people you know it was like cool i had never seen people from different cities so i i never seen people from Philadelphia before. So it was like only on television. I'd never seen people from Miami or, you know, it was like, wow, you guys are from Wisconsin. You guys are. And it was that was so amazing to me. I was just blown away by it. And they all love God. So mm-hmm. I think that was like my introduction. It was as if God said, I can meet you where you are mm-hmm. and you don't have to come to this like religious environment. That was really probably impactful. And that turned the wheels of my spiritual spidey senses. And of course, at that conference, I heard the gospel presentation and that was where my conversion experience happened.
2: During that time, what was going on? with you as far as contemplating race, understanding race, you know, you said about that time, you know, a little bit earlier, you started coming in contact with white culture more often. Mm -hmm. And what, what kind of wrestling did that cause for you?
1: Yeah, I was pretty um, content in blackness in my black culture, my black world. Mm -hmm. I didn't venture out. I didn't listen to much music outside of black culture. I didn't watch movies outside of black culture. I didn't, I didn't think any two ways about, white people. Mm-hmm. I just was like, I don't know. They're in their world. I'm in my world. I don't really want to engage with y'all and yeah. and I'm fine. I'll stay where I'm at. You stay where you're at and we'll just be where we are. But I think, um, that I felt like I, I was interested in like being, it's like, it's like the threeness. Like, I don't want to miss out. If there's something I'm missing, let me know what I'm missing. And some of my, the people who were leading Bible studies were quoting authors and stuff. And I was like, yo, who are these authors? I never heard of them before. So Mm -hmm. then I would start reading their books and, or skimming through their books. And then I was like, oh shoot, like this is actually very intellectual. And that uh, appealed to me. Mm -hmm. So I was very attracted by the intellectual side of Christianity, which was mostly white men.
2: Yeah. Did you know that at the time that it was mostly white men or was it just a name on a book? It was just a name on a book. But
1: mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, it was like subconscious or, you know, you weren't really paying attention to the fact that it's like, oh, you're just consuming a lot of white men's thoughts. Right. You weren't thinking about that. You just were reading the book because they appealed to your intellect. You were, And I didn't realize that I i was also reading their culture into my face. I didn't catch that either. So I was just reading the book. And so their perspectives became my perspectives. And then, I'm, you know, little by little, you begin to frown on black people pastors and theologians because they were more heart and hands. When I say heart and hands, I mean, it's like emotion and service and less head. Mm-hmm. And um, and I was like, man, why aren't y'all thinking about this? And that's wrong. And why are you saying it like that? That doesn't make sense. And so I began to, to have this disdain and kind of prejudice toward uh, black teachers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you start thinking that the white man's ice is colder and their water's wetter and you don't even realize it. So that attitude just starts to permeate everything that you, you do. And so now you you want to hear these pastors and you want to go to these conferences and go to these churches. And, and only people there are white people. So, of course, you should just start assimilating. But I knew not to, like, give up myself. It wasn't like I was wearing Dockers and boat shoes and button ups. I was still me. Mm-hmm. But, you know, because I just was raised that way, but I still wanted to understand that space.
2: What's going on with your identity at that point? Like you you kind of touched on it. You know, you talked about how you started looking down on, on black pastors a little bit. And mm-hmm. what did that do to you internally that maybe you didn't know at the time, but you can look back and see
1: it now? I think it subconsciously made me feel like white people were smarter. Mm-hmm. White people were they had more to offer and that um, it's best that I attune myself to them versus like, All right, let me change the way I talk around them. And I, I'm not thinking like, well, they never change the way they talk when they're around me. Why well, would I change the way I talk when I'm around them?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Or, you know, I don't, let's talk about the movies and let's watch the stuff that they watch. I never watched The Office before, but that's all they talk about. So let me start watching The Office. You know, you just little by little start adjusting yourself more toward them, mm-hmm. and then they they started to become my heroes. You know, and and I just would embrace things that were probably less culturally black, but I didn't think about it like that because I thought I thought I was just adopting. Christian culture.
2: Were there questions you had about race that, like, even if it was internally that weren't being answered and weren't being even confronted?
1: Oh, yeah. I, I, w- I would always wonder, like, you know, why we were slaves for 400 years and, you know, what is what was God's plans there? And, hmm. and, um, and the answers I would get was, like, you know, well, praise God, because now African-Americans know Jesus. And had they not been enslaved, then they wouldn't know Jesus. And, you know, uh, the curse of Ham. You know, was that like a real thing? And I really legitimately got answers like, you know, that was God cursing, you know, African-Americans or Africans at the time because of paganism. And now, you know, look at the times we're in now. Now African-Americans know Jesus and and Africa knows Jesus. And So I really bought into those ideologies and those things. Mm -hmm. And so I did have questions, but there was always those kind of answers. You know, or God is sovereign, you know, it's kind of like, all right, well, I guess God is sovereign. He's in control. So let it be. And I never looked at the disparity because I because I was I didn't expect I was doing well to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I I was making a living off a rap. And I mean, I wasn't killing it. You know, I may have been making like, I don't know, maybe like 40 grand a year. But I was like, shoot, that's better than, you know, going to college and having to get a real job. And so mm-hmm. I was like, I wasn't complaining about the disparities as much because I didn't see them all. And mm-hmm. I bought into these ideologies. You know, John Pipers, don't waste your life. You know, the whole idea of like, man, don't don't just stack up money so you can retire, like give it all away. And I, so I bought into these ideologies, not realizing like, oh, this is y'all are coming from a place of having family you know, wealth and mm-hmm. having opportunities, and I don't get those. Mm-hmm. But I'm still adopting this, and I'm and I'm pushing this to my own community. So that was that was some of the tough stuff that um, I don't think I wrestled with in process.
2: So when did when did all these things start coming out? Uh, if I was to to guess, I would say it was about 2013, 2014. Uh, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, uh, yeah. you know, Ferguson, all that stuff publicly. That's when it started. Is that is that an accurate assessment?
1: Yeah, I think I was. I was like wanting to reach my community and I was realizing that they weren't rocking with some of the, the leaders and teachers that, um, that I rocked with. So I knew that there was a gap, but it wasn't like clear, like how big of a gap it was. And then obviously like when Michael Brown or Trayvon Martin was murdered, that was an issue for us in my community. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming it's an issue for everybody, you know? And then when you realize like, wait, why are none of these people that, uh, why are none of the people I look up to? Why aren't they talking about this? Or why don't they care about this?
3: And, yeah.
1: and so I was like, maybe they don't know. So let me just talk about it. Mm-hmm. And then I talked about it and I was pushed back on vehemently. And I was like, yeah. what the heck? And that's when I realized, oh, we're different. You know, we're, we're really different.
2: Like how, how did you deal with that at first? Again, we, did you think it was to, to be ironic an anomaly or was it an apocalypse of revealing of, of the truth to you? What, wh- how did you first react to all that?
1: Um, I was initially just hurt. You know, I thought, you know, you're the golden child. So right. I, you know, it's kind of like, I can do no wrong. I know I'm not wrong. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm a golden child. Everybody loves me. Uh, big three energy on the Enneagram, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, and so first I was taken aback. Like, why, why, why aren't y'all agreeing with me? Like, what are you talking about? I said it right. I wrote it right. I know my facts are right. What, what am I missing here? And so then I was just hurt. Like, wow, wait a minute. These people are really like, mean and hurtful and racist (laughs) and i was like what the heck is going on here you know that just blew me away because i I was like i didn't know it's kind of like finding out uh you know your parents are on drugs or something you're like what like what is going on here you know it's like really hurtful so i got really kind of hopeless there was a lot of other things happening in my life at the time that helped push that forward you know i was very idealistic and i thought that christian's we serious, and you know, I I went on a tour, and everybody on this giant Christian tour was really, you know, conniving, and there was all kinds of like dirty secrets going on, and I was like, this is crazy. So I was jaded, mm-hmm. extremely jaded. Um, I would listen to songs that I I knew the Christian artists who wrote them, and I was like, their lifestyle doesn't match this song, and so this was only adding to that, you know. So I was really just like, man, I'm I'm done, you know. These this is trash. I don't want anything to do with it.
2: So about 2017, is that right? Is that the low point for you?
1: 2016 for sure.
2: 2016 was? Yeah. So what happened in there? Again, you had this public persona that's getting trashed all the time. I remember seeing it on Instagram, you know, you you'd like your July 4th post. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that, that was an extreme version, but it, almost every single thing you put up, you got trashed. Mm-hmm. Like you said, you you have relationships with these other Christian artists. Yeah. You have a relationship with these famous, worldwide famous pastors, you know, Driscoll. I know Piper you had some relationship with and all that starts crumbling around you. Mm-hmm. You know, where where do you go? Where do you retreat to? What happens again in, in your heart, in your personal life there?
1: Well, yeah, I think in my mind, there was nowhere else to go because the world that I had built up, the ecosystem I had built around me was those individuals and the pastors and the the theologians, they were the pinnacle. You know, these were the high priests in my world. So Mm -hmm. to be let down by them meant there was nowhere to go. And so I was just at the lowest point. I just, at that point in time, I was like, well, I guess I'm just done. You know, with with Christianity, I'm done with God. Because if this is what the people that I respect the most believe, then I don't know what to believe. Mm -hmm. I don't know what's true about anything they've said. And so I, I really just kind of checked out and was like, God, I don't know if you're real, then help me. But I, it was so bad, I couldn't even read the Bible because I would just hear their voices. It's like, I I don't know. I don't trust my own brain. I don't know if I think this or this is what was embedded in my brain by these people who are so wrong about race and culture. You know, it was just so damaging. I don't think I had the wherewithal to process it all. And and I didn't have the community to, a lot of my Black friends, we're all in pain because we're all feeling the same thing, but none of us have the answers. It's Mm -hmm. like nobody's been here before. Mm -hmm. So we don't know what to do. You know, you're seeing African-Americans drop like flies from, you know, evangelical churches, they're leaving, or they're just abandoning the faith altogether. And you got like my friends Jamar Tisby and Tyler Burns they're starting whole new movements and all of us are just like in disarray so Mm -hmm. it was just bad I didn't know what I could keep and what I could throw away you know at that point in time I just threw the baby out with the bathwater I was like I don't know if I believe any of this now
2: I know you had, you know, struggles with depression and addiction and all, all this other stuff in that same time. Mm-hmm. If people want to hear no more about that. Go buy the book. But uh, <laughs> I, I want to know more about how if there's nowhere else to appeal. You know, the, the the best, best pastors and preachers have failed you. Mm-hmm. Where'd you go? How are you where you are now where you're still talking about Jesus?
1: Well, you know, I had to, um, I had to run, mm-hmm. you know, and I ran from the idea of God. And all together and you know that that's always a mixture right like that that's a mixture of hurt pain and then also like well shoot if there's no god then there's no rules so i'm going to do what i want to do and that type of you know licentious wild mustang lifestyle is mm-hmm. always it just comes with its own consequences so i think dealing with the consequences of that type of stuff you know it's like you can take Xanax For only so long before now you develop an addiction and now you have withdrawals and Mm -hmm. now you are having panic attacks and now it's ruining your mental health. It's like, Mm -hmm. I mean, hey, man, those are some of the consequences of like, you know, jumping off the cliff like this. So I didn't know what morality was because for me, I was like, well, where's morality created? I'm asking all these philosophical questions, Mm -hmm. you know, like what's moral, what's not moral, what's good, what's not good why should I not rob a bank today? Mm -hmm. You know, what, like, what stops me? Is it just the consequences or is there a higher moral authority that keeps me from doing it? And and so that just kept raveling me down into a darker, darker place to where I was so low and so depressed. I was just like gasping for air. And I was Mm -hmm. like, I just need a voice outside of white men to hear from. And I don't want to hear from Black men, Mm -hmm. because I feel like they're just quoting white men. You know, like an echo chamber in a lot of ways. And I don't even know what's good about the black men. I don't know what's good about anything. Mm -hmm. So I just had to get out of America. And I was blessed to have the resources to do that. So I just went to Egypt. And I think that's where God really met me. I wasn't looking for God. I was just like, hey, let me go check out pyramids and let me go hear voices I've never heard. And it's like, you you hear, egyptian historians tell you about the nile river Mm -hmm. and you're like oh this is a real thing this place is real and i think the breaking point for me was my historian didn't know the bible was not a believer was not a christian and was telling me about a pharaoh who let all the slaves go Mm -hmm. and i was like oh like like moses the hebrew slaves got let go and she's like i don't i don't know your moses and i was like moses the bible she's like i don't know the bible but this pharaoh let millions, hundreds of thousands of millions of slaves go and he's not revered or talked about. And I was like, shut up. You know, so then it was kind of like, wait, this stuff could be real. And that's when I think the wheels kicked back in to like, all right, maybe some of your sadness and depression is like conviction and you need to realign yourself with God. And so that helped me. But it was like I was only listening to like the obscure voices from other countries about Jesus. I wasn't trying to listen to any Western views. And, and that that was very helpful.
2: So what would you say now Jesus is for you?
1: Man, Jesus is, I mean, he's the Messiah. You know, I, I had to go back and understand everything in its original Hebraic context. And, and he's the Messiah. He's the Messiah that everybody's been anticipating to change the state of the world through changing us. But he's not Uh, nationalist. He doesn't see America as the greatest, as the center of, you know, the faith. You know, he's not blonde hair, blue eyes. And he is the great unifier. He takes the zealots and he takes the Herodians and just the, 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 he takes all these people and puts them together. And I think that's what I learned to do with Christians. So I can listen to all of these pastors, white, black, Hispanic, Mm -hmm. and I can just see what is good. And, and I can take out of it now. I know the bigger landscape mm-hmm. and I don't have to just say, well, if he's right about this, he must be right about everything. Or if he's wrong about this, he must be wrong about everything. I can just kind of realize like some people have good things that I can piece together. And and I'm okay with that now.
2: What's the gospel now to you, you know, versus what it was 10 years ago?
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. The gospel 10 years ago was this military mandate that if I didn't share I was lesser than, and I would say today the gospel is, is about bringing Shalom. It's about bringing peace. Right. And that's what, that's what Christ came to do. He came to bring peace. Um, And so that's the good news. The good news is that the world is in chaos and it's full of pain and sin and hatred and hurt. And Christ comes to bring peace. And I'm a picture of that. And so, you know, it's, the, it's a message of good news right? And the good news is that Christ has come to bring peace. And so if you will trust him, then you can have peace. You can have peace in in multiple different aspects. And so that's, to me, what's important. It's not just this mandate that I have a checklist that I got to like share with somebody to feel better about myself. It's like, I care about this person and I want them to know peace. And so there's implications of the gospel. And then there's, you know, it's implicit and it's explicit, right? There's the implied aspects of it is because my life has changed. I can bring peace to you and I can love you and show you grace and mercy. And you can appreciate that and be like, man, I want to, I love this person and I want to know more about why this person is this way. And then there's the explicit, like, Hey, let me tell you the story, this ancient story of Messiah who came to, to bring about this transformation and this peace. And so um, it's more of that to me than anything else.
2: For someone like me, who grew up in in white church, uh, grew up in white spaces, how would you say that we start separating whiteness from Christianity in America? what would What would be a way for someone like me to to start down that path?
1: Well, I would say you know, first, just understanding the construct of white and black, right? That that, that we live in a, a great book to read is cast by Isabel Wilkerson where you just can understand, like, this is a caste system that we live in. It, it's race is a construct, but caste is real. Mm-hmm. And so there is a sense of how we see people based off of color. It's a color caste. And so one is it's understanding, like, the caste system that exists in America. But then two, it's understanding that as a person of European descent, you have a culture. America is more about the culture of white people than it is about America. Like some people say, "Well, what's your culture? I'm American." Hot dogs, baseball. I'm like, "No, that's white. Mm-hmm. You just don't realize that." You know what I'm saying? Because in your mind it's just it's just American. You don't see the culture associated with it. And so, I think it's it's understanding that you have a culture and that when you when you want people to move in the way you move, you're telling them to assimilate to your culture mm-hmm. because you think it's right. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like instead of trying to understand like, "Oh, there's subcultures, and this is my culture. So when I wear a Atlanta Braves hat as a black man, it, it's probably not because I'm a fan. It matches my clothes, or mm-hmm. I'm from Atlanta. I probably don't watch the Braves, but you have to be okay with understanding that that's that your you culturally would only wear the hat because you're a fan, mm-hmm. and that's okay. But just knowing, like, that's my culture, mm-hmm. and I think when you know you have a culture, then you can engage people differently. You can say, oh. Guitars and Hillsong is not worship. Mm-hmm. That's a cultural form of worship. And so when I play this and people don't like it, it doesn't mean they don't like God. It means they don't like this cultural form. And and so I think that's that's really big for my white brothers and sisters just, just to understand that they exist in the culture.
2: What is the difference and how do you tell between influencing and enabling your local church?
1: Well, I think... If we're thinking of church as an institution, you're never going to influence it mm-hmm. because it's an institution and it's got to run the way that it needs to run. It's got money to make. It's got bills to pay. And so church as an institution, I don't believe really can be influenced mm-hmm. um, unless that influence helps with the bottom line, um, because they're n- they're never going to move in the direction of what the Bible calls Zedekiah or righteousness and generosity if it interferes with the institutional goals. Because that's just the way we are in the West. So, why would I be honest about race and ethnicity if I know it's going to mess with my bottom line of my institution? Mm -hmm. Now, we're talking about church as a community of believers, right? You can influence a community of believers because their goal is shepherding and care and sharpening one another and loving people outside of the community and serving. And so, you don't have an institutional goal. You have the goal of doing just what you're supposed to do as the church is shepherding, loving, caring, serving, building up people for the work of the kingdom. And so I would say that if your community is not willing to sacrifice some of those institutional goals, it cares more about the empire than the kingdom. Mm. But if they're willing to sacrifice those institutional goals for truth, then that's a healthy place. You know, I don't want to be in a place where it's about the empire and the institution. I want to be in a place where it's about the kingdom. And that doesn't require buildings and lights and guitars and doesn't require that. It requires leadership, shepherds, people, loving people and walking with people. And so there's a lot of ways that can be done. I mean, it could be done with buildings lights, and guitars, but that in a lot of times becomes a hindrance and a weight for yeah. people to run in the way that they need to run.
3: Yeah.
2: What kind of church are you going to now?
1: So I do this kind of a hybrid. So I do what's called um, a Torah club, which is where we get together. We study the scriptures in the ancient Hebraic context in a, in a house. And then I also, I, I go to what you would call it. One of those Sunday institutions mm-hmm. um, where I know the pastor and, and he's open to hearing those things, but I, I'm okay with it as long as my family understands this Sunday situation is not our primary means of community and influence. Mm-hmm. This is, it's, a, I mean, and this is going to sound trite, but it's almost like going to watch a movie that really helps inspire you to keep living for Christ. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like, yeah. let's go watch this production. My kids, on the other hand, they get integrated with other kids and there's programs for them. So I love that. But, but we know like, it's our Torah club. Mm-hmm. It's our getting together with our local community. And it's a smaller group of people that where we do life with each other. And, you know, for us, it's like, man, we're that. Yeah. So, you know, a group of my friends, you know, we function as the leaders in that specific context.
3: Yeah.
2: Where, uh, where can people find you? you got stuff coming up? What, what, what's going on in professionally right now? What, what do people need to do? What do they need to know?
1: You know, obviously there's always music coming out. So go check you know, all your music service providers. I'm always putting out music. Of course there's a couple books out but i think the biggest thing for me right now is um you know it's people just understanding the work going on behind the scenes and just feeling like man i want to support an individual who's trying to build things outside of music so if you see me post about something like that on social media you know it's because i'm, I'm sincere uh, the best thing to just follow me on twitter instagram facebook you know stay 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 tuned in
2: why I Stay is a production of the Pathios Podcast Network, where we explore faith and gain understanding. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a five-star review and go tell a friend to listen to it. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Lecrae. I was super impressed with his willingness to be open and honest about the things that he's experienced over the last 15 years. If you want to know more detail about Lecrae's journey from being a darling of the Young Restless Reform Movement to being a leader in the cultural conversations about race and religion, check out Lecray.com. You can get his books, music, and so much more there. This episode was edited and mastered by Clinton Battles, and it was produced and hosted by me, John Osborne.
0: If you're enjoying this series, consider checking out one of our other podcast offerings from Pathios like From Sin to Saint. Some people might point to his anti-Nazi activism as the key thing for them. I mean, I'm I'm compelled by that, but I think it's the theological and ethical underpinnings of his choices that really resonate for me. This willingness to die for his beliefs has inspired both religious commitment and religious violence.
2: There were a couple of high-profile murders of abortion doctors and bombings of, of abortion providers in which the people who were convicted of the crimes identified Bonhoeffer as their inspiration.
0: In this four-part historical exploration of the life and legacy of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, join creator and host Josh Lash as he sits down with experts and walks us through the intriguing and complex life of this revered German theologian and martyr. Or consider checking out the Bible Brief podcast. So let's talk about
2: for a second just... What is it? What's in there? How do we just untangle all of this and figure
0: out, is it something we should pay attention to? I think that this is the most, perhaps the most misunderstood book of scripture. Would you agree? Pretty much hands down. In this special three-part series, host Lori Denning and guest Dr. McLean Heward sort through some of the popular misunderstandings about the New Testament book of Revelation and examine what this ancient apocalypse might mean for us today. You can find From Sin to Saint, the Bible Brief podcast, and our entire podcast catalog on patheos.com or on your favorite podcast app. Check the show notes for helpful links and more information.